Now, I think we are all inspired by courageous acts. You know, we all like heroes. And we honor them with due recognition, whether they're Boy Scouts or in the military or, or just a community recognition. We're, we're moved by individuals who respond heroically in crisis situations. And Todd Beamer's words from uh, Flight 93, let's roll, still call us, I think, to acts of heroism and, and self-sacrifice. But without in any way depreciating spontaneous acts of heroism, there is another type of courage that is even greater. It's the kind that causes someone to steadfastly proceed into a terrible situation in which personal involvement could be avoided. It's the kind of courage that causes one to continue on a course that they know will lead to tragedy, knowing that it must be done, no matter the cost. It's a calculated heroism, knowing what it's going to cost, but doing it anyway. And that's the kind of courage our Lord had. You know, back in the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel, we saw Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well what lay ahead. Luke reminds us again of that determination in the 13th and 17th chapters, as well as in our text for today. And today we find Jesus telling the twelve what to expect in Jerusalem, something that should not have been unexpected. Because he had told them about it before, and the prophets had written about it hundreds of years earlier. We're in the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, prophets had written about the coming of the Son of Man for hundreds of years and had prophesied some pretty amazing details about His coming. Now, some of the prophecies are veiled because biblical writers often made statements that had contemporary as well as future application, but most acknowledge that there are around 300 Messianic passages in the Old Testament, and 60 of them are major prophecies that describe who the Messiah is, where he will come from, and what he will do. The New Testament writers note Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament more than 130 times, and Matthew alone cites 21 prophecies that were fulfilled in circumstances surrounding the life and death of Christ. The mathematical probabilities of all the prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus are astronomical. In fact, the astronomer and mathematician Peter Stoner has estimated that the chance of only eight 
of the prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one man is one in ten to the 17th power. Now, for those of us who aren't mathematicians, he explains what that would look like. He says that that many 10 to the 17th silver dollars would cover the state of Texas to a depth of two feet. And if you marked one of them and mixed them all up, the chances of a blindfold man finding that one that is marked on his first try would be the same. That gives us some idea. Now, if we up the ante to 48 prophecies, the chances rise to 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, that's 1 followed by 157 zeros. It's going to take us a long time to get that far in depth. I hope. You know, one or two fulfillments in Jesus' life might be dismissed as coincidental. When they're all fulfilled, probability reaches the point of certainty. So without a doubt, Jesus is the one prophesied in God's Word. And without even giving consideration to what he may or may not have known as God in the flesh, on the basis of those prophecies alone, he knew what lay ahead in Jerusalem. Zechariah stated that he would enter Jerusalem triumphantly amid shouts of praise and honor his king, not on a white charger, but humbly, mounted on the colt of a donkey. Isaiah detailed how he would then be rejected and suffer at the hands of men. The psalmist tells how he would be betrayed by a friend, and Zechariah foretold he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, how the money would be thrown in the temple floor, and how it would then be used to buy a potter's field. It was further prophesied that false witnesses would arise against him, but that he would remain silent when accused. It was stated that he would be mocked, insulted, spit upon, and scourged. It was foretold that he would be numbered with transgressors, that he would be put in the company of criminals. We also find that specific details of his death and burial were prophesied. It was prophesied that his hands and feet would be pierced long before the Romans thought up crucifixion and that soldiers would cast lots for his clothing. It was prophesied that no bones of his body would be broken, but that he would be pierced through as a soldier did when a spear went through him on the cross. Isaiah stated that his grave would be assigned with wicked men, but he would be with a rich man in his death, a prophecy that Joseph of Arimathea unknowingly fulfilled by getting permission to lay Jesus in his own tomb. And it was prophesied that he would rise again and ascend into heaven. All of this was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came. And he knew the prophecies. He understood them. Still, he was willing to go to Jerusalem to face all that had been 
prophesied. He knew what lay ahead. But he also wanted to make sure that disciples did as well. So he went on to spell it out for them, just in case they had overlooked the disturbing prophecies, as had the majority of Jews in Jesus' day. Verses 32 and 33. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. The he he's talking about is the Son of Man, Jesus' most common way to refer to himself. You know, he did not broadcast the fact that he was the Son of God. He stated it clearly and carefully on selected occasions, but he didn't often refer to himself as such. He knew it would only feed and flame misunderstandings about his role as Messiah. But his disciples knew he was talking about himself and what would happen in Jerusalem. In fact, this is the seventh time Mark records Jesus stating or intimating what would happen in Jerusalem. In the fifth chapter, he stated that there was no need for the disciples to fast. He did note, however, that a day was coming when the bridegroom would be taken away from them and that they would then be overcome with grief and fast. In the ninth chapter, Luke records him stating that he will be delivered into the hands of men. In the twelfth chapter, that he was distressed by a baptism he would have to undergo. In the seventeenth chapter, he clearly stated that he would suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. In the 13th chapter, he said he had to go to Jerusalem because a prophet couldn't perish outside of Jerusalem. And in the 9th chapter, he explicitly stated that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, but would rise again on the third day. Now he lays it out for them again saying he will be delivered up to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And that after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now, as an aside, I think it's important to note that Jesus said he would be delivered up to the Gentiles and be killed. Acknowledging that will help avoid anti-Semitism and the racially charged accusation that the Jews killed Jesus. The Jewish leaders called for his death. The Gentiles killed him. No one nationality can be blamed for the death of Jesus. In fact, no one took his life from him. He gave it willingly for the sake of Jew and Gentile alike. I think it's important that everyone understand that. But let's get back to the main focus of the text. Jesus is once again clearly stating that he will be killed and that he will rise again. This is weeks 
before it happened. And he'd also said it months before. Now, this obviously proves that the events of Holy Week did not get out of hand, as the skeptics would have us believe. Jesus knew what lay ahead, and he deliberately, heroically went to Jerusalem, knowing full well that rejection, suffering, and death awaited him. Of course, he also knew he would rise again. But that did not shield him from the pain and suffering he knew that he would have to first endure. He knew what lay ahead. And he was ready for it. But he also wanted his disciples to be ready for it. That's why he was so explicit. Why he so carefully spelled it all out. But in spite of all he said, They didn't hear it. It was just too hard to believe. And for many, it still is. Verse 34. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Luke here says the same thing three ways. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. Obviously, they didn't hear what Jesus was saying. Now, it is true that Jesus often said things that were difficult to understand. And they may have simply dismissed it, thinking it couldn't mean what it sounded like. But I think it went deeper than that. As Ray Charles is credited with saying, no one is so blind as he who will not see. They didn't want to believe what he was saying. And so they didn't. They had bought into the idea of a political leader who would put Israel back in control of the world. They, like the Jewish scholars, couldn't even see the prophecies that spoke of a suffering Messiah. What Jesus was saying didn't fit in with their preconceived ideas, so they dismissed what he so clearly stated. And they are not the only ones to do that. No, many dismiss the truth when it's unpleasant or makes demands on them. When given bad news by a doctor, most respond with denial. Well, the disciples didn't want to hear about suffering and death. So they shut those things out. The sad thing is that in doing so, they also shut out the promise of the resurrection. They missed it all. Because they refused to believe what Jesus said. They had their own ideas about God and his kingdom and their place in it. So when he taught that God would require a sacrifice 
and that his kingdom would be spiritual, they didn't hear it. When Jesus made it clear that they too would have to bear a cross, that they would have to crucify self to be a part of the kingdom, they shut their ears. They didn't want to believe it. It didn't fit their theology. To their credit, however, they did come to understand and accept the truth after the resurrection. They came to understand the nature of sin and how it cuts a man off from his creator and that a penalty had to be paid for that sin. They came to understand that a Messiah was not a king who would rule on an earthly kingdom, but a sacrificial lamb who would make possible an eternal spiritual kingdom. They came to understand that a death had to precede a resurrection and to believe it with such conviction that they would be willing to die, as did their Lord, in order to share in his resurrection. The resurrection broke through their blindness. The question we must ask ourselves two weeks after Easter is, has the resurrection broken through our blindness? Jesus went up to Jerusalem and died to give us life. Do we really believe that? Do we believe it enough to stake our own life on it? Are we willing to give up our life to find his? Now, Paul made it clear that we must be willing to die before we can live again. That we must share in Jesus' death and burial before we can know the power of his resurrection. In Romans 6, 3 through 6, he wrote, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin. In baptism, we share in the likeness of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And in doing so, we testify to our willingness to die with Christ, to share His cross, so we can share His life in His resurrection. The reality of what happens in Christian baptism was driven home by a boy at Niners Camp 20-some years ago. I was dean of the week of camp. 
And it still gives me goosebumps. After his immersion, he questioned his teacher, wondering why he hadn't died when he was lowered under the water. She was amazed by his question and asked if he really believed he would actually die in baptism. When he said yes, she asked him why he was willing to go through with it, thinking it would kill him. He said he figured Christ would just bring him back to life. Like he had done with everybody else who had been baptized. Blew us away. Blew us away. So he should make us think. Would you be willing to let me lower you into a watery grave if you believed you were actually going to die in the baptistry? Are you even willing to symbolically die to self in the waters of Christian baptism? I pray that you would. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but he did. He knew it was God's plan, his plan, and that there was no other way. God has revealed to us His plan for us. He has revealed in His Word how we can share beautifully in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. May we not be like the disciples who let their preconceived ideas blind them to what Christ was saying. May it never be said of us. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. Jesus' words are plain, and so are the Apostle Paul's. May we be given the courage to publicly acknowledge that the way of the cross leads home. And may we crucify self in order to experience the life Christ rose to make possible. Come. The baptistry is ready.